HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Grape Nation is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines expertly curated for you. Go to wineaccess.com slash grapenation for more info. With our growing season just around the corner, we're sowing seeds of knowledge and empathy on this week's episode of Meet and Three through four unique stories. I'm always shocked at how aggressive people are with their language. I'll have something like Japanese knockweed and they'll say, you know, these are terrible, they're they're foreigners, they're invasive, and you know, but they're also, you know, they're really healthy if you eat them. We're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us and they're actually already kind of living in the future because cities are hotter and they're more polluted and they're more fragmented and these are the plants that can deal with that. Tune in to Meet and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross. We'll talk to Jane and John about the wines of Australia, micro wines and legend. We'll taste an Australian cab and a Cinzo for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Jane Lopes has graced our microphones a few times to discuss sexual harassment in the wine industry, multiple issues with the quartermaster sommeliers, and more importantly, her life through her book, Vignette, or just as important. Jonathan Ross is a master sommelier. He worked as head som at 11 Madison Park before following Jane to Australia to work with the Rockpool Group. While in Australia, John bought a few grapes to make wine. This was the beginning of micro wines. Jane and John, who are married, moved back to the States to start Legend Imports, focusing on the wines of Australia. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Jane and John. Thanks well, for Jane, having me. Welcome back, John. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm excited about this because I'm excited about what you guys are doing and I you know, want to get into it. Um, we're talking to you guys remotely via the Zencaster app. Where are you guys right now? We're in Los Angeles right now. Which is where you moved and are living? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Don't make this long. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the, the short story is we're not really living anywhere. We're, we're on the road. Most of our stuff is in storage. Ah, uh, um, okay. Really in Australia. And we inherited a car from from john's grandfather and we're just um we're just on the road we've been driving around since the end of march and and that's what we'll keep doing for the rest of this year hey why not you know you got to be on the road to sell this stuff now john jane's been on the show a couple times like i said you know discussing some very important and uh, great stuff um this is your first time 
Give me a very quick chronology of your journey in life in wine. You know, when you got into the biz, how that progressed and how you got to where you are today, which is your wine and the import company. Yeah, um, I grew up in central Jersey. Uh, my parents are both uh, public educators and retired. And um, I, after high school, studied sports medicine and architecture and enjoyed working in restaurants more than going to school. So stopped going to school and just focused on working in restaurants and then decided to get a hospitality management degree from a local college. Um, moved into New York when I was 24, having worked at some pretty inspirational restaurants for me at the time in, in New Jersey, um, in particular stage left in New Brunswick, um, left a pretty valuable mark on me. Um, in New York, I, I worked at a variety of restaurants. I worked for Michael Salakis and Donatella Arpaia at Anthos and Miadona. Um, I worked at Porterhouse with Michael LaMonico, ended up um, as the AGM at Oceana um, at the Lovanos Group, and then went on to work at uh, 11 Madison Park for a little over five years. And the last two and, two and a bit were as the head SOM. And, um, all through that kind of just engaging with wine and, and going through formal education and, you know, hands-on education and so on. And, you know, towards the end of my time at EMP, realizing it was kind of time to do something different, but didn't know exactly what that was. And fortuitously, Jane got offered a job in Australia where I could go and really work wherever I want and do whatever I wanted. So, um, we just jumped and went. And uh, I worked Harvest a little bit here and there in the U.S. Um, and then kind of hooked up with, uh, became pretty good friends with Mac Forbes while down there and spent a good four weeks with him straight during the 2018 Harvest and, and really just kind of had so many aha moments and realized that my entire career and relationship with wine was from a finished product, you know, end point user point of view. And there's just so much more that goes on before that. And, and realized that I had never worked in the wine industry. I only ever worked in the hospitality industry. Um, and Australia was a pretty open, accepting and encouraging place for, you know, for new people. So I kind of just, you know, dove in and became friends with another winemaker who was at an estate called Bannockburn, um, which is kind of right across the street from the Farr family in Geelong and really kind of the original estate in that area and um, bought some uh, Syrah grapes that were planted in the 80s on some pretty interesting limestone soils and, um, you know, just paid some equipment use fees and made the wine there under the watchful eye of someone who wasn't going to touch it as long as I wasn't going to screw anything up. And I learned that if you don't get fancy, wine kind of takes care of itself as it goes through the fermentation process. It's it's the growing process that's the difficult part. Um, and And from there, kind of, you know, off to the races and and making a few different things and adding to the brand, but also just really becoming um, fully curious and seeking more of those aha moments from wine outside of the point of view of restaurants and, and retail and, and that finished product. And I think early on in Australia, Jane and I realized that we were going to bring Australia back with us when we returned to the U.S. Um, we started looking at Legend probably within six months of being there, originally trying to start it while we were there, but knew that it was us that had to tell the story for it to be successful. Right. And here we are today, telling the story. Let me ask you something. Let me ask you two things, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Um, in there, you got your master sommelier. Just tell me, uh, when did you get the MS? A few years ago? Yeah, so I had gone through everything and, and passed two of the three sections all while living in the U.S. And the year right. we moved to Australia in 2017, um, we flew, I flew back from Australia to take tasting in 2017 in October and passed, and that was when I passed. So I was working and living in Australia. Um, and honestly, the first couple of years of me, you know, being an MS, I, I really didn't engage with the U.S. community too much. Uh, right, you were away. I was over abroad. I, I taught... All of my teaching, you know, under that banner, um, experiences in Australia, I did do a bit of work for Guildsom, you know, maintaining the compendium, right. fact checking articles, things like that as a way to kind of stay in touch. But, but that was about was it. it. The, was it the typical, you know, you spent three, four or five years 
of intensive time, you know, during the day through the years to prepare for that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was time consuming and it's expensive, right? It's time consuming and expensive. And, you know, when I was at 11 Madison, um, most of my time there was, you know, waking up early and studying for a few hours before going into work, Um, you know, and and really and, and then tasting as well. And, you know, we hosted the tasting group at EMP for a long time. It was a group that we hosted at Oceana for a bit as well. And it was a group right. that actually broke out of a Ifiori group that Risto um, was leading. And, and, and really right. the most valuable part of that, and I think for Jane as well, is this community network of tasting groups that we were all a part of for, for so long. The, peop- the people. Oh. All right. So I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I really want to move on to the fun and important stuff. But And Jane and I know this as well as anyone, her way more than me. We know that the court has gone through a bunch of changes for some very, you know, obvious reasons. Um, And I want your take on it because, you know, I got chains. Is it too little too late or are the prospects there for a reasonable future for the court? I mean, where's your head on this? My head on this is kind of back to the people that that we just, you know, mentioned the greatest asset of a group of wine professionals is the people. And you don't need this, an umbrella symbol organization, a, a mechanism to package these people in. And all of that can change as long as the group of people are intact and pushing forward. And it can be under the umbrella of the court. It can be a different organization, whatever it is. And, And I've realized and we've realized you don't need the court to be a mentor, to be a leader, to learn, to grow. It's it it is not something that I I think we've, you know, I was on a call a little while ago and Dylan Proctor said it best. The CMS has been telling us that they're the authority for a very long time. And it shouldn't be about them being the authority. It's, it should be about a group of people that want to give back and mentor and teach and make the industry better. And, you know, I think that for me personally, the CMS has a lot to prove and a lot to do before I ever, you know, beat their drum again as loud as I can and, and, and you know, spread the gospel. But I think as far as being the individual that I think that I wanted to be once I passed, um, you don't need the CMS to do that. You never. I, need I, totally, to do that. I, I totally agree. You know, I think as a matter of fact, your willingness, you know, to do that in the community that existed, existed probably was held back, you know, by being in the court. You know, you could do whatever you want, you know, and have the same, you know, effect. I, I agree with that. Um, let's move on because I don't want to make the show about that. Um, I want to talk to you a little about... Australia and Australian wines. And then, you know, I want to get deep into uh, your stuff. Um, And it'll be a good chance for us to taste our first wine. But tell me if I'm wrong on this. Australian wines were very popular a few years ago. And I don't know what that few was, 5, 10, 15, maybe even the early 2000s. You know, they, they made a big impression with the big, bold Syrahs. It was almost like that Napa cab thing. You know, everybody loved Napa cabs because they were big and bold. And I think that's how they looked at Australia. And then, and again, correct me when I'm done, everything seemed to go out of favor. You didn't see those wines. You didn't see much Australian wines. And now you're seeing a lot of good things coming out of Australia, the wines, the people, things like you guys. Is that a fair assessment of, you know, what has gone on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I would say it is. Um, yeah, I would, I, you know, early, early to mid 2000s, I think is, um, and even late 90s. Yeah, you know, it's really a 30 year time span when you look at this kind of ebb and flow of Australian wines popularity. Um, and you're right, it came in with kind of the big, the big, bold um, Barossa Shiraz that, um, you know, was able to command a fair amount of money. Uh, and then, I, you know, I think a few things happened. I think, um, you know, the currency exchange got really poor <laughs> in terms of 
of bringing uh, Australian wine to the U.S. And so, um, you know, the the wines got even more expensive. And, uh, you know, I don't think Australia at that time was doing a good job of kind of building up brand Australia as a whole. And it was really just this this one style. Um, and then uh, and then, you know, so the, it was a marketing problem at some point. Yeah, I would say. I think it's yeah. a marketing problem in some respect. I think Jano is kind of likens it to a little bit of a house palette or cellar palette and the people in charge of marketing these wines abroad. And, and not to speak to, you know, there's there's incredible people that are on the ground today. Mark Davidson, Christy Frankly, or, or Christy Frank that are that are running education for Wine Australia and have done a great job. But as a whole, to market Australian wine to American buyers and sommeliers and consumers with an Australian sensibility of what's great doesn't necessarily translate because every group of people find is attracted to different things in a wine and different attributes. And, and there was a seller palette where what people really believe to be great in Australia, they just assumed that that was also going to be considered great in the U.S., and, and that doesn't hold true for really any wine producing country. Yeah. And I think it also wasn't the, it wasn't the era of the Somme, you know, it was still, you know, so dominated by, by, you know, by retail buyers and, and what, what they liked and more importantly, what they could sell. Um, and I think when kind of the, the era of the, of the Somme entered and everyone was, you know, really curious about all the, uh, you know, obscure wine regions and, and, you know, European wine really kind of became um, first and foremost in the United States, Australia kind of lost out in that. Um, and then I, you know, Yellowtail did not help either because no. um, Australia no. became seen as sort of this um, bulk wine producing country. Right. Um, they got they got a bad rap from that. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, then you, you know, you and I agreed that you know Syrah was king, and that's what people thought. Um, is is there now an interest in a diversity of grapes? You know, I'm I'm not assuming. I know more artisanal, smaller wineries are making wine, um, and that's what you guys are doing. But even before you and with you, is is that stuff starting to come? To the totally. U.S. Totally. And I think, you know, it's a combination of a few things. It's it's, it's the idea that Australia is, is not, and it's funny, we see this as low-hanging fruit when we talk about where Australian wine can go. When you talk about Australian wine, you see it listed on, on portfolios or in wine lists. It's just listed as Australia and there's no sub-regionality and, or regionality. And, and there are places in Australia where Syrah just would never would never grow, but Pinot Noir grows and Riesling grows really well. And I think it's, it's, it's the really kind of commitment to understanding and, and, and using those different regionality um, characteristics to a, a positive. And I was actually talking to another, to a winemaker who's in the great Southern in Western Australia, not too long ago. And he talked about how Australia touts this idea that it's a new world and they don't have any AOCs or DOCs and they can do whatever they want. But he says that there's these social, you know, self-imposed restrictions on styles of wine and so on. And, and that heavy Shiraz that you're talking about is exactly that self-imposed limitation. And in the past 10 years, Australia as a whole has really taken that limitation off. And, and this is not to say that, honestly, that we have anything against that style. And I think that, you know, the, the rich Barossa Shiraz is a really beautiful, unique thing that Australia does. And we have, you know, some of those styles in our portfolio as well. I think it's just about showing, yeah, more, a more complete picture of, of what Australia is doing on, uh, you know, every end of the spectrum. So good segue, Jane. Um, I asked if you would be kind to send a couple of wines um, to taste that are part of your portfolio. And you sent me two wines. And let's quickly talk about the first one. It's called Marit. It is a Cabernet Sauvignon. 
It is from Rat and Bully. That's all I'm going to say. Um, it's a 2015, so it obviously has a little bottle age, and maybe it sits in the barrels for a bit. But tell me, tell me a little about this. This is a traditional cab, it seems like. Yeah, you know, this is a producer, Merit, that um, I, you know, all the wines in our portfolio are wines that John and I worked with, um, either one of us or both of us when we were living in Australia. Um, and so we we have very personal relationships to these wines. Um, you know, I met Colleen Miller, who's one of the proprietors of Merit. She came and, and tasted with me when I was working at Attica in Australia. Um and, you know, I was, I was struck by the quality of the wines and just, um, you know, her and her husband, Mike, just really going about things in a different way and, and also really championing a region that had yet to be sort of really recognized in Australia, Rattenbully. So Rattenbully is, um, is just north of Kunwara and Kunwara is so, is, is, uh, at least marg- much more famous in Australia and, and marginally more famous in uh, the rest of the world. But um, you're talking about the limestone coast, southern South Australia, right on the Victorian border. Um, and Kunwara is a region that's really well known for its its Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and Rattenbully is basically just an extension of this region, a little bit higher elevation, um, but also... Um, uh, a little bit warmer, so uh, less frost risk. So really a, a, a beneficial region and a region that uh, that people have been buying grapes from for uh, for you know decades, really recognizing the the quality and the value that that this region represents um, in contrast to to Kunora, which is a, you know a fairly expensive region. So. Right. Uh, so I'm looking at I'm looking at this wine and it's a very deep dark brooding wine typical cab. Um, on the nose, you know, you have that black fruit. I mean, what else can you tell me about? You know, this wine. I pick up some vegetal on the nose, which I like. You know. Yeah. So I think it's you know they talk about so the. Mary started as grape growers and they sold, they've been selling grapes off for 15 years um, to different people. And this 2015 is their first vintage of, of making their wines. So they talk about how they're picking their grapes two weeks earlier than, than a lot of the grapes they're selling. So you do get more of those savory characteristics, but you know, this is still a 14% alcohol wine. It's not it's not shy. It's not lean. And, and really what we love about it is, is it does kind of really bridge the qualities that we appreciate in, you know, quote unquote, old world wine, you know, kind of a more Bordeaux style and the qualities that you traditionally get in a new world wine, that kind of riper fruit quality. So I think it kind of has best of both worlds and, and you get nice ripeness of fruit um, uh but also really good structure, both acidity and tannin. And as you identified kind of those, um, those really nice savory notes. Yeah. What, um, will this be available in the States? Is it available when and approximate cost? Yeah, it is. Um, it is currently in the States. It's, uh, in a few different markets, um, namely, uh, I believe New York and Illinois right now. And Vermont. And Vermont. Um, <laughs> and uh, New Jersey, and New Jersey, um, and they right now there's essentially two tiers. So the the Cabernet and Merlot that's at the 2015s that are in the market now retail, I think right at 60? 60, 60, 65. So um, and I, then there's a, a another range that's a little bit younger and under screw cap that's uh, twenty nine dollars retail. That to me, this is a good value for that. Um, I will post the wines and any follow-up information, you know, as we post social. Um, You started to get into this, but I want you to finish it because I think when people uh, look at Australia, they know Australia makes wines. They see this country sort of the shape of the U.S., um, but they have no idea where the wine is made. You know, so when you look at like an Italy or a France, these countries have dozens and dozens of winemaking regions, literally, you know, all different climates and everything. In Australia, um, most of the wines are made 
you know, in the South and the East. Just tell me, tell me about, you know, that's the, the regions that you discussed, you know, are in that area. And just tell me about everything else. And you guys worked in Melbourne, which is, you know, not far. It would be like a San Francisco to Napa type thing. Just let people visualize where the wine is in that country. Yeah. So if you, if it really is in that Southeast corner. And I think when, you know, we were in Melbourne, which is this, the Southern Eastern city kind of about, you know, uh, a 45 minute plane flight north, you know, to Tasmania. So, so really in that Southeastern corner, um, to give you an idea, Sydney is about a one hour flight North, but in general, very much the Southern half of the country. Um, and it's all along that kind of southeastern coast. The state of Victoria, quite small, is 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 full of wine regions. And then New South Wales, where Sydney is, has it's really kind of its its southeastern corner of that is is wine region. Um, and then South Australia, which, like you said, it's about um, a nine hour drive from Melbourne to. Adelaide along the Great Ocean Road, so very much like driving from San Fran to, to L.A. Um, and all of those wine regions, the majority are centered along the southern coast where Adelaide is, the city. These wines that where Jane mentioned, the Limestone Coast is a little bit further south and east of Adelaide um, and actually is inland, but at one time was the southern coast of Australia and is very much all limestone with some some clay soils over top. Um, South Australia, as an example, is 50% desert. Um, And then there's a little bit of corner in the very far southwestern portion of the country near uh, Margaret River and south of Perth. And then, of course, Tasmania. So is limestone predominant and there's a diversity of towers and soils or there's a ton of different stuff? There's a ton of different stuff. Australia uh, is home to the oldest uh, known earth-made substance uh, mapped at about four and a half billion years old, and it's deposited in sedimentary soils in Western Australia. Uh, In general, um, the whole southeastern corner um, where the Great Dividing Range is, there's a lot of extinct volcanoes and volcanic activity. Most of Tasmania is covered with a a really large volcanic intrusion, um, but all of these are quite old. Uh, so soils ranging from, you know, 400 to 600 million years old with then some much older um, soils that have been there. And, and again, so if we, if we think about Margaret River, the formations there are about one and a half billion years old. Central Victoria, you think you're about 500 million years old. And it ranges from volcanic soil in origin, you know, really hard old sedimentary soils of mudstone and shale and ironstone. Um, there's certainly a lot of limestone around the coastal areas, but many have been covered with more recent volcanic intrusions. Um, there's over 80 different identified GIs across the country, um, all of different altitudes and climate and soil and geology. Um, it is uh, extremely diverse. And it's one of those things where, you know, you could have a, a 400 bottle wine list that's all French wine and really cover every, every style and execute a 20 course tasting menu with a different wine all from France. It is absolutely not even doable. It's easily done and exciting to do the same with Australian wine. Yeah, I would think so. Um, so you mentioned climate is as diverse too. I mean, you have coastal, inland, hot, cool, everything, right? Totally. Depending where. Yeah. Cold enough for, for really crisp, sparkling wines. We have a couple in our portfolio. Um, you know, moderate enough for really gentle Pinot. We actually find places like the Yarra Valley and, and, and Tasmania. When, we, when you look at climate, um, they're actually about as – climate is more akin to Oregon or even um, warmer parts of Burgundy. Um, the thing is, Australia's got a ton of sunshine, so um, it's a place that can be as cold as, you know, like in parts of uh, Tasmania, they're colder than Dijon, but they've got about 40% more sunshine hours on the year, um, which is a really wonderful kind of point of difference and tension um, between old world wines and wines, you know, where you have similar climate, just so much more 
you know, fruit flavor. Right. When you look at places like the Jura and the Loire, you know, there's a pretty good track record and history of organics, even biodynamics, low intervention winemaking. Has that been going on there? Um, has it switched to that? Um, you know, because if you look at Napa, you know, they're not doing anything. And if you look at other, re- I, I mean, what's what's sort of the organics, you know, history track record there? Yeah, I mean, Australia has a great track record there. I think a lot of people, I think because Australia is kind of the pioneers of a lot of um, viticultural technology, there's this kind of this idea that that goes hand in hand with a lot of additives in the vineyard, but it's actually quite the opposite. Um, It's a pretty highly regulated country and there's not, um, you know, there just isn't a, a, a wide usage of of these kind of really nasty sort of additives. So even people who are farming, um, let's call it conventionally, uh, you know, it's it's pretty pretty mild, and there is a lot of um, research that that wine Australia as well as individuals have been doing to um, you know use things you know systemics in the vineyard that are uh, the, have the least amount of impact on, on the soils, you know, and, but, but beyond that, you know, there is a, a lot of producers who, uh, have converted to organics, a lot of producers who are biodynamic. Um, it's, it's definitely, a a, a really strong movement in Australia. And I think is the climate, is the climate um, conducive to that? You know, is it drier and not as wet? Like in Oregon, you know, they yeah. worry about powdery mildew. Is it a little easier to deal with that stuff there because it doesn't exist as much? Yeah, in a variety of ways, you've got, um, you know, rather than having too much moisture, having too little moisture is, is more the problem. So disease pressures are low. Australia has become very good at recapturing and reclaiming water. So we talk about irrigation as this dirty negative thing, but no one's, you know, hooking up to the sewer system and, and pumping, you know, reserved water. It's catchment dams and rainwater collections and filtered, you know, and recycled gray water. And, and most people who are irrigating, if not all, really aren't purchasing water from the town. Um, they are going about it in a renewable way. You know, when it comes to organics and biodynamics, um, those certifications are managed by an organization in Australia um, called it's NASA and uh, National uh, Association for Sustainable Agriculture Australia. And rather than just doing an organic certification, they also do a biodynamic certification. Um, them, along with Demeter, are present in the country, and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that are really kind of driven by those by that organization. It's been around since the 70s, um, so those certifications have been in play for quite some time. Um, and when it comes to renewable energy and resources, you know, for an example, in November, Tasmania became 100% reliable on renewable energy, um, which is a pretty incredible feat for, you know, they're in a, a place that makes maybe makes it a little easier, um, but it is, it's an incredible feat regardless. Still, um, it's, a, it's a commitment. Totally. And it's a commitment that Australia as a whole has made and for a while. Well, and yeah, and a lot of that, you know, technology that I spoke of really arose to um, address irrigation. You know, you think about like deficit irrigation and stuff like that, you know, yes, they're beneficial for the quality of the vineyards, but they're also um, in large part to save water. And, and, you know, I think that uh, a lot of times we look at technology as kind of, um, you know, the antithesis to this, like, you know, old traditional way of making wine, but a lot of it really is, um, you know, doing some, some fantastic things towards, um, natural resource management. Right. Guys, we have to take a break. Um, when we come back, I want to get specifically into your wines and, you know, what you're doing at Legend. And we're going to taste the uh, micro uh, for their weekly wine sip. Um, you're listening to the Janie and Johnny show on the Grape Nation. Um, I'm Sam Ben Ruby. 
We will be right back. It's time to make a move on those wines you've been thinking about. Wine Access makes it so easy for everyone to order the most delicious wines from around the world. If you're just starting out or adding to the collection, Wine Access's team of experts taste over 20,000 bottles annually, curating everything from renowned to under-the-radar winemakers. Here's a few great suggestions. The 2018 Arietta Quartet Red and the Giving Kitchen Cab Sauve, both from Napa Valley. Check them out. You'll also learn about each wine you buy because Wine Access tells you the story behind the wines, helping you understand and appreciate what makes each bottle special. Check out Wine Access today to find your new favorite bottle. Here's an exclusive offer just for the Grape Nation listeners, 20% off your first order. But to get this offer, visit our special URL, wineaccess.com slash grapenation. That's wineaccess.com slash grapenation for your 20% off discount on your first order. You can't go wrong with any bottle because if any wine fails to impress, Wine Access will credit the bottle. No questions asked. Go to wineaccess.com slash grapenation. All right, we're back. We're back with my guests, Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross. Jane and John uh, launched a new company called Legend, where they're importing wines from Australia into the U.S. John is making wines called Micro, and I want to talk about this. Um, The obvious question is, you know, when and how did the idea of starting this company come about? Um, you're talking about legend, correct? Or micro legend. Yeah. Yeah. No, let's talk legend. Yeah. We'll talk micro towards the end. (laughs) Good. Um, yeah, we were in Australia. Um, you know, I was working for, I think I had actually, it was just after I passed, it was probably, uh, the end of 2017. We kind of started messing around with the idea of, of bringing Australian wine back to the U S and it was something that we realized was long overdue. We, we likened it to as if 95% of Italian wine wasn't present in, in the U S and that included, you know, incredibly singular producers and regions alike. And we started looking at figuring out how to do it while we were in Australia and, you know, you know, finding someone in Australia, in the U S maybe to partner with and, you know, going through business plans and, and we realized we needed to be stateside to do it. So the kind of following two years was building business plans, talking to potential investors and, and really kind of gearing up and collecting producers and so on. And um, we just knew that, you know, going to Australia, we we first said, we have no idea what we're going to do when we get back. So we have no no plan beyond Australia. And soon after, Australia gave us a plan for when we got back. So it was kind of, you know, fortuitous happenstance in that regard. But um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about something. Um, is as big as Australia is and as popular as the wines were and, you know, now again are, is there underrepresentation in the States? Are there a lot of good winemakers that don't have deals here or a big chunk of the good wines are here? Uh, I think there, we think there's uh, still a lot to be represented. Um, you know, right. I think it's, there, there's, a, there's regions where um, maybe, whether it's a historical producer that's been around for a long time, whether it's really just the very best of the best producers that aren't here. Um, there's a few of them and, you know, there's producers that are, that have been around for 15, 20 years that are doing amazing things that have never been here. Um, so there really is uh, a lack of representation, but it's also a lack of real just understanding and appreciation Right. Um, explain. So you're the importer. Your your goal is to bring the wines from this country to the United States for the market. How does the and I know the answer, but I want you to tell, you know, the listeners, how does the wine as an importer, how do you get it throughout the country? You have to set up arrangements in each market as the importer and look for a distributor. 
Correct. So, um, you know, that's a big part of your business plan right now, getting exactly. all that together, so, right? You know, we originally had kind of thought maybe we maybe we self distribute and kind of have control of, of of every step in the process, but we realized as we did more research and started setting things up that really, you know, being responsible for distribution would give us less time to do the things that we were really um, passionate about and that we felt were really important to build, you know, to build brand Australia in the United States, like, you know, like outreach and education. Um, right. And so you would be caught up in the business. Exactly. We also recognize yeah. from being buyers that no one wants to work with right. a new distributor, especially right. a global pandemic that's, that's focused just on Australian wine. So it'd be a lot easier if our portfolio was within a larger distributor and there were, you know, shared efforts. We've brought things to the table. Distributors bring things to the table. And it's just a, a better, you know, all around effort that proves to be more successful. That, that makes sense. I mean, you guys know what kind of time you have on the job to meet people and talk about it. Now, there's something very important going on with your company, you know, important to me. But obviously, you know, you're building the business around it. And you founded the company based on a set of values called um, a statement of values. Um, just tell me a little about this, because this is a very socially, you know, conscious company. Not big, but, you know, everybody should be thinking about it or doing it at any size. So tell me what this statement of values is or are. Yeah, well, you know, I think coming back to the United States from Australia in March of last year um, was kind of a, a, a big wake, wake up call for both of us. You know, Australia has definitely um, some of its own problems, but it is in general a pretty um, uh, I guess it's a, it's a little, it's a place that doesn't necessarily leave its own behind as much as the U S does and both places right. certainly do, but you know, we kind of, and I think for a while and, and we, we, we felt this way from some of the business owners we interacted with or worked for in Australia, but also have seen it in the U S as well. And I think back to my time at Stage Left in New Jersey, just the idea of, of, of employing someone or having a business, it's, it goes beyond financials. And, to, and for us, we, you know, we don't employ anyone right now. We, we've yet to even pay ourselves. Um, but, <laughs> We're exploiting our own labor. But the idea, like when we see ourselves, <laughs> when we get to the point where we can provide a livelihood for someone, that's a really big deal. And there's... A few right ways to do that. There's a lot of wrong ways to do that, and I think we want to be we want to be people that if we're going to go into business for ourselves and we start to work with other people and build relationships and so on, we kind of want to help foster the type of livelihood and, and interactions and relationships that we want to have and that every and that we believe everyone should have. And, and I think that's kind of where it was born out of. And you know, I mean, we always talk about Australia's, you know. It, labor, there's not really labor issues the way there are in the U.S. Everyone's paid 25 bucks an hour minimum wage and there's health care everywhere. And those are pie in the sky things in the U.S. But we don't want to be a business that employs people and doesn't offer some level of health care. We don't want to be people who pay minimum wage in the U.S. because they're things that we don't believe provide a sustainable life in the U.S. And we don't want to be representing wineries that are exploiting labor um, well, that was my question. Do yeah. you, you will hold your partners um, to a same or similar set of values, right? I mean, if something is so blatantly wrong, you know, at a wine winery or whatever, you're done with them. I mean, so you are holding them to these. Totally. Values, and and right? Aust what's luckily, Australia is a place where the government holds people accountable pretty hard. It's not too difficult to get temporary work visas. So there's really little if no exploited or undocumented labor. And as I said, minimum wage is 25 bucks an hour and everyone has health care. Um, and wage theft in Australia is a criminal offense. People go to jail for it. Um, it's uh, right. So there's, there's some basic things that I think are, are you know, built in. As an example, I was buying fruit and I would get a picked and unpicked fruit price. 
And it was always at least a $600 per ton difference, essentially saying you're paying for labor because it's going to cost us much money to get the fruit picked. I sell that to people that maybe buy fruit in California. And it's the first time they ever heard about the, the cost of picking the fruit being factored into a fruit price. Wow. So different. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, it's okay if I tell people, I mean, I, at some point we're going to tell them if, you know, they want more information on legend, they can go to your website and it talks about, you know, what your portfolio is, but there's also a section, um, with the statement of values and it's interesting, um, to see the depth of it and, you know, how socially conscious you are. So the statement of values is on the uh, legend website, um, Tell me a little uh, like how the sausage is made. You know, you have a small growing portfolio of wines. I mean, you were pretty clear saying that being in the business, you were really around wine and the winemakers. So, you know, you had a pretty good Rolodex of people to approach. Um, Is that how you put the initial portfolio together? You went to the wines that you liked, the people that you knew, you know, how'd you get the core thing going first? Yeah, you know, we, um, yeah, we just reached out to, we, you know, we kind of, there's a lot of wine that we really love. And honestly, I think we could turn around tomorrow and, Triple and, the portfolio. yeah, and reach out to 50 producers we'd love to work with. But, you know, we just had to be smart and strategic to, to represent a variety of regions and styles and price points. Um, so we kind of right. put together an initial list of what we thought kind of would look like a really well-rounded portfolio. Um, and, you know, yeah, we just reached out and most people we had had uh, a, a personal relationship with already. Some people we got, you know, an introduction from uh, their Australian distributor if we hadn't met them in person while we were in Australia. Um, but but there was, that was only one producer. Yeah, so almost everyone there was a already a personal connection in place. So we just reached out and right. said, you know, this is what we're doing, and you know, we'd love you to be a part of it. Um, and and these these people didn't have representation in the U.S. or they weren't happy or both. So there's there's a couple you know scenarios. There's one producer who was represented in the U.S. Prior to its current ownership, it's actually the only winery where we don't deal directly with the owner winemaker, um, which right. is Seppelsfield. They're a bit larger, um, but right. they're super historic. And, and they were imported by negotiants, um, you know, I think 15 years ago. Um, Didn't they just release this 100-year-old wine in casks or something, I yeah, saw? Yeah, so since 1978, crazy. they've been releasing 100-year-old wine. So they started with 1878. And they just did the nineteen twenty one. Um, so those are things. That's something that we have, you know, available. There's there's, there's old vine and there's old wine. There's yeah. old vine, and and this is is both. Okay. <laughs> and right. also, there's really nothing like this wine when you think about it. I mean, yes, you could find a hundred year old port or Madeira on the market, right. but none of those things have been aging in barrel for a hundred years, you know, and they're not always a state grown. I mean, you think about Madeira, the bottler is not the farmer. Um, right. You know, this is, uh, right. this is grower hundred years in wood. Um, it's pretty wild. And, you know, we're really excited to, to have them. And, you know, fortified wine was a history in Australia, the same way it was in the U S but, um, they've got an incredible portfolio of vineyards throughout the Barossa. And um, we have wines from them that retail for 20 bucks a bottle all the way up to, you know, thousand year old, hundred mil bottles of hundred year old wine. So, um, right. So, so you, you said you said you were, you know, you wanted to have a balanced portfolio, you know, which makes total sense, you know, regionally um, and all of that. Was it, were there any frustrations, you know, that you wanted more, but you had to start with less um, just because you wanted to give the proper representation and you don't want to start too big of a company? Not, not, not really. I feel like the only... No. Think well, of anything, it was the opposite. We maybe wanted less. It was. <laughs> you, know, you did? We, we were, when COVID hit, we kind of 
realized that we were going to be doing this without any kind of serious funding. And we were just kind of going to make it happen ourselves. So we were asking for somewhat extended terms from our, our producers. And so, you know, we, we thought were, they were all going to say no, and we'd be, <laughs> you know, importing they were all cooperative. Yeah. And being, well, cause, and, and listen, you, they know you, you, you know them, you got to take some of the benefits of a relationship. Yeah. Well, and that's, you the, know, that's I mean, question. you've been good to a lot of these guys, I'm sure at both restaurants, they were glad to hear from you. Well, and that's something that we talk about that, you know, looking back on this, you know, in normal times, we can go to work and save up money and, 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 you know, get the capital that we used of our own savings to start this. But the currency that you earn, and I think this goes back to our statement of values, the currency that you earn by doing the right things um, is something is something that's also deposited in a bank. Um, but you can't go back and re-earn that as easily. And I think we both recognize that we were kind of putting that on the line. Yes, we, we were able, we built relationships where people could trust us, but we needed to then also follow through. So we're thrilled to say that we've been paying our bills on time to our producers and it really means a ton <laughs> okay. to us to be able to do that and i know a lot of people in this industry don't um but you know it, it's recognizing the sensitivity of that that relationship and and putting it at as paramount right um you know when i looked on the website one of the reasons I asked you to describe, you know, the wine growing region. So people, when they look at Australia, they realize, oh, that's where the wine is made. Um, but it looks like that, you know, three or four regions, Tasmania, you know, is where the thick of the wine country is. And that's, you know, where most of your producers are, right? You know, in Victoria, um, Southern Australia, all those regions, right? Yeah, so right now we have producers, um, we're bringing over producers from Victoria, South Australia, and Tasmania, um, which is where kind of a, the bulk of the, the wine in Australia is made. We're definitely, Western Australia is is not a super significant in volume. terms of volume, but in terms of premium wine, it absolutely is. And and so we're, we're talking to a few producers over there, um, we're talking to producers in New South Wales and even Queensland. So we definitely want um, want to get kind of all those states on board. But we felt like in terms of, um, yeah, kind of an uh, initial telling right. the story and also initial ease of logistics in terms of getting things. It made, made business sense. Yeah. You had those three, those three regions we thought were kind of the, the first ones we wanted to, to get on board. Right. You know, my last bunch of guests, I, the show for February focused on West Coast winemakers. And what I realized after talking to them, Martha Stoom and Stegan Pascalak was, you know, those guys, even I didn't talk to Dan Petrosky, but all these guys are making wines in California that are not the typical California varietals. Um, in Australia, we talked about Shiraz, you know, being... Uh, an important varietal, people are making Pinot. Is there an expansion of the varietals? Are there, you know, some funky new wines and grapes? I mean, do you have your eye on that? Yeah, There's, I mean, I guess... I mean, John, you're making a Cinzo, which is not unpopular, but I mean, people don't think of that in Australia. Cinzo was in Australia just as, you know, I mean, like, but, you know, like, give me an idea. I was working in a, when I was at the Rockpool Group, we had an Italian restaurant and I was working the floor one night and someone asked me for Nebbiolo and I turned to the Barolo page and they're like, no, Nebbiolo is Australian. Um, ah. <laughs> Italian grapes are abundant and thriving in Australia. Um, and for Jane and I, I think we would, we would firmly say that um, outside of Italy, there's no larger presence of Italian varieties, nor really? is any other country doing them as well. So, so you're going to go ahead. I think we we have one producer, Chalmers, who focuses pretty much exclusively on Italian grapes. And the way they look at it is they're making Australian wine. You know, Italian grapes just really work with, with where their vineyards are. And Italian grapes are just as international as Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Cabernet, you know? For Australia. Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, 
So when the rubber hits the road, you got to get the wines in restaurants and you got to get the wines on retail shelves. And you guys are now um, experiencing both sides of it. What's the pitch? You know, John, you're a busy guy at 11 Madison. You know, you're a busy guy at Rockpool. Janie, you worked at some, you know, pretty killer places. Guy walks in. You know, why should they buy these wines? I mean, here's an opportunity to, you know, give the pitch. I know it. I get it. I'm sold. But, you know, what? tell me why this is important and, you know, why I should make room for this. Yeah, I mean, this is something we talk about a lot. Why why Australia? And, you know, I think it's things that we've already touched on. You can feel very confident in the labor practices that, you know, the bottle of wine that you're buying, no one, no labor was exploited to, to get that wine in, in your glass. And farming practices. Um, and farming practices as well are very good across the board. I think um, the story is important to consumers now, whether they're, you know, owners of restaurants, bars, or the actual consumer. So that's a good point. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think in general for consumers, there's, you know, ease of packaging. Wines are in general varietally labeled. They come under screw cap, which I think consumers are coming around to in a major way as seeing as a very easy and reliable closure. Um, you know, the design sensibilities tend to be really good, which I think is important when retailers are looking how, at, you know, how a wine will, will do on their shelves. Um, you know, for us, it's kind of this fun balance of it is a bit of a new frontier for, for buyers, for sommeliers, where it's, you know, producers they've only read about but never tasted or regions they've never seen before in the U.S., um, so it is, there's this kind of excitement of discovering something new, but it's also a pretty easy sell to turn around to consumers because it's grapes that people are familiar with. And as we talked about, kind of really approachable, approachable packaging. So I think it really Australia yeah. right now is really the, the entire package. And I think, you know, the only, the only downside we see is that it does have to travel around the world to get to us. And, you know, I'm not right. sure what. Other importers are doing, but we're, you know, offsetting our carbon emissions and making sure that we're, you know, we want this company to leave the world a better place than than we found it. I also think, you know, you're leaving something out. And I think that, you know, it's you guys that are representing and selling this. So I think you have the credibility and attention of the marketplace. You know, the first guest I ever had on the show was Laura Catena. And I think Laura Catena and her dad single-handedly made Malbec a brand because they traveled the world, they had the credibility, and they were tireless about it. Um, and they were in Europe, they were in the U.S., and people were like, okay, Malbec, and they would really push it. Um, not the exact example, but with you guys out there, you know, representing it, pushing it, telling the story and the education, which is important and I know important to you, you know, I think that's as important as anything, knowing that you're going to bring in, you know, good product. So um, kudos to you on that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Now, John, I just poured myself, let's talk about micro wines, which is um, part of the legend family. Um, and... Uh, I just opened the Sinzo. Tell me a little about, take a few minutes to talk about this wine, talk about micro, you know, where that's at and what you're doing. Yeah, so micro wines is really just kind of a literal um, version of a micro negotiant because it's exactly what it is. It's it's purchasing fruit from, from different sources and vinifying it at a, a facility that I rent space at. Um, you know, it started out with a Shiraz from Bannockburn in Geelong, which is a, a fairly cooler climate for Shiraz. It um, yields a wine that's in the low 13 percentile of alcohol and is a bit more savory and had a really fun time with that. And I've, I've um, three vintages of that have been produced, 18, 19 and 20. And then in 19, I added the Cinso and a collaborative Pinot Gris that I make with the person that I um, rent winemaking space from. And uh, the Cinso comes from a biodynamic vineyard uh, in an area called Vinevale 
in the Barossa Valley of South Australia. Um, it is Vinevale is unique because it's all this really kind of white bleached sand um, over um, kind of more granitic and, and ironstone foundations. Um, the vines are pretty kind of gnarly and old on that vineyard. They're really of all ages, ranging all the way to about 140 years old in some parts. Um, I don't get any of that. The, there's no since so that's that old. This is, I think, around 50 to 70 years old. Um, the right. plot. That's pretty good, though. Um, you know, and, and, and since so is, is a grape that this is kind of something that found me. The person that I work with, Sierra Reed, who's also in our portfolio, has been purchasing Grenache from this vineyard. Um, and since so became available. So we we the facility is in an area called Torquay, which is um, in Victoria. And what we do is we'll drive out to the Barasa, which is about nine hours. Um, we'll spend a, a night or two um, tasting and picking and then drive the fruit back or follow the truck back and process it, um, which is always kind of a fun little road trip in the yeah, middle of sure. harvest. Um, sure. You know, and, and, and oh. micro wines is it's a it's an interesting scenario this year. Um, I applied for an entrance exception into Australia because of covid. And they mm -hmm. wanted me to prove that my contribution to their economy was greater than the risk to the community that I would pose. Um, and I wasn't wow. able to do that, um, obviously. So, right. you know, for me, micro wines has been very much about learning through doing and, and getting a lot of aha moments. And, you know, I, I think back to, you know, it was really kind of working with Mac in the era. Um, where I said to myself, I never want harvest to, to go away. I want it to be a part of my life every year. It's a really fun, you know, enlivening moment in the year. Um, so, so because of micro, are you guys going to find yourself in Australia every year, minimally once a year you oh, know, yeah. for business, John for wine, you know, relationships, all of that logistics. Totally. Um, I mean, Australia is, as, as my mom would say, it's a bit of a schlep. <laughs> my mother would right? say the same. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, is, uh, it is, Australia now holds a very special, before legend, it was very special to us by the time we were leaving. And I think we always want to yeah. go back, see people, relationships, friends. And also, you know, it, it's, it, there's a narrative that, there's truth to the narrative. It's not just us saying, oh, there's this place that's untapped in the US, we're going to bring it back. And the narrative makes sense. We really fully believe in 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 the merits of the wines and the place and the people um which is why we are doing this and want to go back and you know i could definitely make i could probably find some fruit and make a micro wines vintage 2021 in california but that's not really what it's about um, <laughs> like penfolds just did exactly <laughs> yeah um crazy so so um, it's, it's it is kind of in that sense so so it's it's really about me making the wine. I'm not farming. Um, maybe right. one day. You're, you said you're a negotiant. Right. So you I got to looking gotta for the sources. I can't just pay someone to make it for me. So we're going to skip 2021. You've checked a lot of the boxes of the sommelier, getting off the floor, making wine, um, becoming a wine business guy. I mean, you know, good for you. Good for you guys and all that. We got to wrap the show up. I told you that an hour would go pretty quickly. So, John... This is the 2020 Micro Wine Cinzo, C-I-N-S-A-U-L-T. Um, it's from Vinevale in the Barossa Valley. John, I always wrestle. This kind of wine, which has nice acidity, it's crunchy, um, it's delicious, um, fruit, savory, everything. What, what's, what's like the perfect pairing for this wine? Um, you know, I think that wine, it straddles quite a bit, but I... I Honestly, I think it's got a little bit of that kind of that green, crunchy, slight tan. And I, I feel like crudite is a lot of fun with that wine. Like just kind of something light can, and, and that's also a little bit herbaceous and crunchy and bright works mm. really well. I love it. Olives and yeah. Yeah. Olives. It could hold, it could hold up to that. I, yeah. I love it. It's a good wine. Thank you. All right, guys, we got to wrap up. Um, I'm going to do a quick uh, wrap up and then I want to ask you a couple questions. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast. 
on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. But don't be lazy. Just subscribe because the show will show up every week after it's done. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation on Instagram. We're at S Ben Ruby on Twitter. We're at Ben Ruby, but you could find us on either with the hashtag The Grape Nation. As I mentioned, I will post uh, Jane and John's wines that we discussed, you know, with any detail. Um, I asked you this earlier guys if people want more information on legend what's the best place for them to go yeah our website has a ton of stuff legendaustralia.com um you know we can reach out to either of us it's jane at legendaustralia.com and john j-o-n at uh, legendaustralia.com and we're yeah we're and our dms are open on instagram and we're we're available yep so Get off your butt and talk to these guys if you want to talk to them about their wines. Now, um, you guys have personal websites, which shed a little insight into your life and the business. Jane, you're at Janie Maxine. That is my, yeah, that's my Instagram. Yep. Instagram. And John, I could never figure out. I thought I knew <laughs> what DJ Grayman meant, but just while I have you, what is it? So it's at DJ underscore Gramanon. When Twitter and Instagram were coming out, we were trying to, I remember we were hanging out one night at, at you know in the cellar at EMP thinking about silly names and I was kind ah. of it was my my infatuation moment with the wines of Domain Graminon and I was like this would be fun that's what I thought and it stuck okay you're stuck with it all right guys I wish you only good luck um, don't let the business get in the way of your marriage um, <laughs> your partners in life and your partners in business. And at the end of the day, you got to be with each other. So good luck. Um, thank you to our guests, Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross, uh, their new import company, legend, legend Australia. Thank you to our engineer. Um, today we had Armin and everyone at heritage radio network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the great nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.